The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. When it comes to how you envision God's salvation, how God saves people, how God saves you, when it comes to how you see that, how much help do you think you need? What's the uh, illustration you would use? Some people might say, well, I'm not really sure there's a God. I don't think I need any help. I believe in self-salvation. I can, I can make it on my own. I can work hard. I can figure it out. I'll save myself. Uh, but, but most people believe in God in some way. And so I was just wondering, what, what illustration do you think is most accurate when it comes to how salvation works? So I, I want to give three possible simple examples, Okay. Some people seem to believe in a salvation of counsel. Counsel, like, uh, so your, your need then is kind of understood by confusion. And you need a better understanding. And so your Savior comes and maybe helps you ask good questions. Helps you find out what's important to you. So that you're able to find yourself, save yourself, actualize yourself, something like that. Salvation of counsel. Is that how you see it working? Uh, maybe you say, I need a little more help than that. Maybe there's a, like a salvation of guidance. So in this view of salvation, your, your need is understood by lostness. Uh, you're not sure where to go, so it's, it's kind of like you're alone in the woods. But your Savior packed you a map and shows you the way out. So finally now you know the way, you're able to go the right direction, make your own way home safely. So you need a little more help in that illustration, right? Salvation by counsel, salvation by guidance. Um, maybe you're like, I still need more help than that. It's worse than that. Maybe it's a salvation by rescue. By rescue. So here your need is understood by danger. So it's kind of like you're in the, in the middle of the ocean during a storm. and You're drowning in the sea. The waves are crashing. You're not going to make it. But your Savior comes came out in the storm, throws you a lifeline so that you're able to reach out and hold on and you're able to be pulled to safety. So their grace is seen in someone coming for you. Your Savior comes for you in the storm, provides you with the rescue that you need. So what do you think? Which, which one of those is closest to how it works for you? Which one of those is closest to what God's salvation looks like? Well, I suppose we could say they all have a little truth. Don't they all have a little truth? Does God counsel you? Yeah. Guide you? Check. Um, does he rescue you from danger? Oh, sure. However, as we're going to see today, biblically speaking, each one of those illustrations is deeply and fundamentally wrong. They're wrong. They're not enough. So if you're new with us today, we're looking at what we're calling pillars for exile. Uh, the Apostle Peter has called Christians exiles. You remember what that means. We're, uh, we're not from here. This is, this is not our home. We won't ever find the happiness we're looking for here. We're not always going to be understood here. We're going to suffer here. We need to put our hope somewhere else. We're exiles. So we're looking for pillars for exiles. What are the, the truths that hold us up, that, that help us be and stay who we are as God's people and uh, as we're doing this, we're remembering the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It always feels like a big mouthful and mindful to communicate to you. 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And I fear as I talk about that, two-thirds of you start going like this. Okay? Uh, church, uh, uh, church arguments from 500 years ago, really? Or, or there's the concern, are you just going to bash people who believe differently than we do? Is this in the anti-Catholic sermon? I just want to tell you, listen, of course, my goal is never to bore you. I'm sorry for when that does happen. And also, my goal isn't to bash anyone. My goal is clarity on the most important questions of life. That's what the reformers are asking. The most important questions of life. Week one was, how do you know what you know about God and truth and what life is for? Is that a big question? The answer, we're, we're learning a little Latin, right? Sola Scriptura. What's our ultimate authority for how we know? It's scripture, the Bible. Last week we looked at how do you know you're pleasing to God? 
How do you know you're enough? How do you know you can stand before a holy God safely and without fear? And the answer there, sola Christus, Christ alone. The question we're asking this morning, a little more nuanced. It's the question I started this with as, as we began. It's this question, how much help do you need? How much help do you need? How much do you offer to your salvation versus how much God offers? And why is it important? So we're, uh, we're giving Peter just a little bit of a break for two weeks. And this week we're going to be in Ephesians 2 because here Paul deals with this question with such clarity and such power that um, we just had to visit it when it came to the idea of grace alone or sola gratia. You, you need to wake up a little bit, work on your Latin. Here we go, sola gratia. You got it? Ready? One, two, three. Sola gratia. Grace, what? Alone. Alone. So here's what we're going to see today. Three things. Paul's going to tell us what we need to be saved from. How bad is your need? What we need to be saved from. Number two, what we're saved by. What grace actually is, number two. Number three, why it matters. Why it matters. Why it's so important. Saved from, saved by, why it matters. All right, you ready? Are you ready? Okay, thanks. Thanks. Okay, wake up. You ready? Because here it goes. Let's look at Paul's illustration for salvation. We said, hey, salvation by guidance, someone will help open your eyes, give you enlightenment. Salvation, or that was comfort. That was counsel. Salvation by counsel. Somebody help you, help you see the truth in yourself. Salvation by guidance. I'm going to give you truth. Now you can follow it. Salvation by rescue. You're lost at sea. I'm going to throw you the lifeline. Let's look now at Paul's illustration for what salvation is like. Are you ready? This is, this is one of these backhand, backhanded... Uh, Look at it, Ephesians 2.1. And you were, drum roll, dead. And you, you were what? Dead. So we're going to see here our capability, our problem, and the verdict. Number one, our capability. This is not a rocket science. How much capability does a corpse have? You know, you poke it with a stick. Come on, help me out, let's go. Um, it, we're not just confused or lost or in danger. Spiritually, Paul says, all of us, we're dead. Incapable of saving ourselves in any way. It, it's kind of devastating. Uh, salvation by counsel, you can listen, you can learn, you can choose. Salvation by guidance, you can change your direction, you can read the truth, walk toward the light. Salvation by rescue, you can even grab the line and hold on while they pull you in. But what if you're spiritually dead and you're not listening, and you're not reading and walking, and you're not hanging on? What if you can't do anything to save yourself? How can this be, you might ask? Um, because we, lo we look at the way we live, and, and uh, the illustration of corpse only goes so far, right? Because a dead person... There's no life there at all. There's no action. There's no choosing. There's, there's nothing. So he's obviously not talking about a literal, um, lifeless deadness. He's not talking about a deadness that does nothing. What kind of a deadness is he talking about? Look at verse 3. Uh, we can start in verse 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And look at, look at this next word. Following the course of this world. And then what's the next word? Following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, that word following, um, it might be better translated as mastered by. Owned by. Um, and then Paul in verse 3, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. Uh, so that, that word flesh here, it's not talking about your physical body. Uh, the Christianity says the body is good, uh, the body's valuable, God made the body, Jesus wore a body, we're a pro-body. The, the Greek word here is sarx, which means, uh, it's, it's the flesh meaning a 
infatuation with yourself and your pride, where everything is self-focused. Everything is about self. And so the deadness Paul's talking about here is the deadness of a prideful heart slavery. Following, following, following. You're enslaved. Flesh or the heart. What, your heart is what you love the most, what drives you, what motivates you. Paul says it's fleshly. It's, it's self-centered. It's curved in on self. It's all about self. And it's prideful. You saw three categories in here. He mentioned the world, the devil, and the flesh. Uh, what do you know about the devil? What, what really uh, sets him apart as unique? It's pride, isn't it? It's pride. He, supposedly he looked up at God and said, get out the way, I, I want your seat. And that makes him who he is. And then what is worldliness all about? Well, that's pride too. That's all a bunch of sinful folks getting together and saying, we'll do this ourselves. It's about us. But really the core of your problem ultimately is not the devil. And the core of your problem, my problem ultimately is not the world. The core of my problem is that word sarks. It's the heart. It's my fleshly self-centeredness, prideful inclination. And that's my spiritual deadness. So the reason I won't listen to guidance or grab the lifeline is because the one Savior who exists is the one Savior I don't want. The sinful heart says, I will save myself. Does this make sense to you? Uh, do you think it's over? Do you think Paul's overstating it? Um, Tim Keller is masterful in uh, teasing this out, I think. He talks about the flesh and he says, you know, of course it plays out in like tyrants of the world. Of course they're selfish, right? Dominating the people they lead, um, using people. But then you look out in the world and you see a bunch of really nice people, don't you? That aren't Christians? Hey, moment of truth. Sometimes people who aren't Christians are nicer than people who are. Can I get an amen? It's true, okay? How can Paul say, I mean, he's including everybody. He says all of us walk this way. But how can Paul say that your nicest neighbor is dead? Good question, huh? Here's what Teller, Keller tries to, to uh, tease out, and I think it's right. He says your selfishness can play out in cruelty or brutality, but it can also play out, he says, in morality. 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 In other words, why do you try to be ethical, honest, generous, support a cause, give to charity? Well, what if it's to validate yourself and to show yourself in the world that you really are good on your own. What if that's the morality? And I, I think this is right because I think I've done this. I think I've done this. There, there's this standard and I've gotta meet it in order to be seen as good, nice, right. And so I've gotta, I've gotta earn that. And so then when I go to love or serve someone, what's my motivation in that action? Hey look, I'm good. So who was I loving when I was loving? I was loving myself. Is that love? What if, what if a lot of my loving deeds weren't love at all? They were self-centered. They were sarks. They were self-saving. Um, or think of it like this. I, I think one of the most common heart attitudes from people I talk to is kind of a Listen, I'm a good person, and God kind of owes me. I think that's what people tend to believe, especially modern Western culture. I'm a good person, God kind of owes me. But can we, can we walk through the steps that it takes to get there? Number one, to be good, there has to be a standard of goodness, right? There has to be a standard. So if you're like, I'm a good person, all right, how do we know? What are you measuring yourself by? You've got some sort of standard, and here's the thing, if you believe you're a good person, you're probably not using the Bible standard. Because have you, have you read that mess? That will crush you, right? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every time, love him with everything. Have you met that one? Not close, at least for me. Second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Anyone you're bumping elbows with. Anybody you have influence with. Love them as you love yourself. Every time. How you doing on that one? I'm lost. We could go into the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. Don't cut. And on and on. So if I'm going to see myself as a good person, I can't use the Bible standard because it won't work. So what do I have to do then to see myself as a good person? I've got to write a different standard. And it's that standard I now use to judge myself and to vindicate myself and to judge others. What are standards that are out there right now? Think politically, right? If you're on one side of the aisle and you care about this cause and you stand against that oppression, you are now, you're a good person. And those people on the other side, oh man, right? They're not. They're out. They're terrible. And what's, what's my new standard? Oh, this certain political uh, motivation and activism. And now I'm good and now they're not. So to see yourself as a good person, you have to, you're going to have to invent a standard. Here's the thing. What on earth gives you or me the right to invent the standard of goodness by which we judge ourselves and others? Who could possibly have the authority and the right and the wisdom to invent that standard of what it means to be good? Only God. Only God. You'd need somebody who always kept the standard, who was wise enough to know the standard. Only God could make it. So when, when our heart says, hey, I'm a good person without God, I can do this, you realize what the heart is doing. It's saying to the real God, get out the way. And it's saying to the real God standard, nah, not mine. And it's putting yourself in the seat of God's throne and saying, I write the standard. And I am vindicated by my standard. The more, I think the more we look into this, I'm good on my own, I'll save myself. Yeah, you can do amazing deeds of generosity and kindness. You can. But at the heart of it, it still sarks. It's still flesh. It's God, I don't need you. God, I'll vindicate myself. I'll judge others how I want. Martin Luther said this about our sin nature. Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. That's why... um, Paul says, we're dead because we're so self-centered. We don't want anything to do with the real God and what he's like on our own. He even says we're children of wrath because this selfishness just, um, it's behind everything we think and say and do. It's like we've got this radar and and we're always testing everything about life. How does it it fit towards me? How does this person help me? How does it look towards me? Does Does it vindicate? Does it... Does it vindicate me? Does it take me where I want to go? I don't know. Can you see it in yourself? Does anybody have a pride problem in here other than me? Um, We were dead. We're dead, and we're telling God, get out of the way. But here's the thing with deadness, right? Here's the thing. If this is true, that means grace that just helps you won't be enough. Grace that just helps you won't be enough. So if I'm so self-centered and so God-denying, when he's like, hey, can I give you some counsel? I'll be like, shut up. And if he's like, hey, you want some guidance? I'll be like, I don't like your standard. I got my own. If he's like, hey, here's a lifeline, I'll be like, keep your lifeline. I can swim. It won't be, grace that just helps won't be enough. How much grace do you need if it's true that the problem is prideful heart slavery? Look at the grace that God gives. The contrast between who we are in verses 1 to 3 in this chapter versus who God is and what he does is just overwhelming. Look at verse 4. But God, being what? Rich in mercy. 
Because of what? The great love with which he loved us. So just, just be amazed if it lands on you, the, the reality of, of prideful sin that you have, that I have without God. And now look at God's heart towards those who are in this condition. How does he feel towards us? Love. Love we can't imagine. At this point in the verses, what have we done to deserve that love? You remember who we are? Dead in prideful slavery. What have, we, what have we done to earn his love? The opposite. And yet, what is his heart towards us? Even though we're in that condition. Rich in mercy. Great love. Great love. This is why when we talk about grace, we always need to use the word undeserving. It's, un, it's given to those who don't deserve it. Who deserve the opposite of it. The heart of grace God has, now look at his action of grace. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? Made us alive. So you see here that grace isn't just some help for those who are trying. Grace is new life for those who were dead. This was a huge concern for the reformers, to take us back historically a little bit. I want to read you a quote from Martin Luther before his perspective change. Try to see how he envisioned grace, how the Roman Catholic Church of the day envisioned grace. Here's what Luther said. The teachers correctly say that to a man who does what is in him, God gives grace without fail. God bestows everything gratis and only on the basis of the promise of his mercy, although he wants us to be prepared for this as much as lies in us. So sometimes Protestants say, hey, Catholics say it's salvation by works. We say salvation by grace. That's not true, really. They say it's salvation by grace, but they have a different understanding of what grace is and how you get it. And you see from these lines, well, um, Uh, look at this quote from Reeves and Chester as they summarize. As the teachers of the day put it, talking about Catholic teaching, God will not deny grace to those who what? Do their best. It was a theology of salvation by grace, but it was absolutely not a theology of salvation by grace, what? Alone. Because here's the problem. If God gives you grace, some help, when you do your best, it sounds good. I just have a problem. Uh, I've not done my best. <laughs> if I'm going to get grace when I do my best, I'm never going to get grace. Especially when Paul just said, I was dead. So if God is waiting for dead people to try their best before he gives them grace, when is the grace going to come? It's never going to come. Because we're selfish and we're lost in our own passions and desires of the flesh. We don't like him. So if he's waiting for people to like him so he can give them grace, the whole thing is hopeless. This is a huge difference between at least um, thoughtful Protestant thought and Catholic thought. I want to show you a hymn written by Cardinal John Henry Newman. He's a Roman Catholic and much of the hymn is actually quite beautiful. But I just want you to see a distinction in how we look at these ideas. This is what he wrote, part of, part of a hymn he wrote. O wisest love that flesh and blood, which did in Adam fail, should strive against the foe, should strive and should prevail. That's beautiful, right? Jesus came to fight for us. But look at the next line. And that, a higher gift than grace, should flesh and blood refine. God's presence and his very self and essence all divine. Do you see the distinction you just made? There's grace, and then there's something better than grace, which is God himself. Hmm. Hmm. Look at how Paul says it in verse 5. 
Look at how Paul says it in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together, what? With Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. So what is the grace Paul is talking about? Is it help for those who are trying their best so they might get the presence of God? Is that the idea? Listen, the way I want to ask it, is God like a distant father sending grace like money as long as you're a good kid? Is that the way salvation works? No. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By grace you've been saved means you are saved by God giving you, uniting you to, connecting you to the person of Jesus Christ. There's not a grace that might get you God. Getting you God is grace. Saved by grace alone really is another way of saying saved by Christ alone. You were so dead and so lost, the only way you're getting saved is for Jesus to come and wrap his arms around you and own you and resuscitate you and regenerate you so that you are now alive in someone else. Alive in Christ. Look at what Paul says. Verse 6. You've been made alive together with Christ. Verse 6. And he's raised us up with who? With him. Who's the him? Jesus seated us with him, Jesus, in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages the Father might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You, there's no grace without being connected to Jesus Christ. And if you're connected to Jesus Christ, there's no end to grace. Do you see the difference? Grace isn't like here's a little... Uh, pump you up. It's Jesus Christ coming and making you his and giving you everything that he is. What does it mean that we're seated with him, that we're raised up with him? Uh, it can't be literal quite yet, right? I see where you're sitting. <laughs> and you look good, but I don't know if you've been raised up in that physical way quite yet. What does it mean? Well, there's, there's a legal sense to it where God unites us to, to Jesus Christ and where we can't be separated from him. And this is the way the gospel works, right? Think of the whole gospel logic. How do you know you're gonna be good enough, you're gonna have the righteous merit you need to stand before a holy God? There's only one way, and that's if I get what someone else has done. So Jesus has to get me somehow what he's done. Or how do you know you're gonna be all right to stand before a holy God and he looks at all your sins? And you could try to atone for him, it won't work. How are you going to know that those sins are washed away? Well, the only answer is this. What Jesus did on the cross where he took upon himself God's wrath, that has to be given to you somehow. And how are you going to get this? How are you going to be raised up to new life? Well, you're going to have to be connected to Jesus somehow so that all that he is and all that he's done is yours. And that's exactly what Paul says has happened. God sees you as sitting with Christ. By the way, where is Jesus Where's he chilling right now? Where's he sit? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. You know, in the ancient world, it's probably easier to get this illustration. If you were a general or a warrior or something and you won this huge victory and you came back in victory with all the spoils of war, uh, guess who you get to sit next to? You get to sit next to the king, right? And he says, hey, look, right here. Gives you honor and praise for your victory. Well, think about it. What, what has Jesus won, right? He's defeated sin and death. He's king of kings, lord of the lords. He's going to reconcile the world to himself. He's seated, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So the Father says, look, right here, right here, the victor. And guess where you're sitting? Same seat. Same chair. You've got to meditate on that. You've got to suck, suck on that for a little bit. You're looking for uh, significance and value and worth and dignity in your life. You're not aiming nearly high enough. Look where you're seated. You're seated. You're seated with Jesus Christ. And look how long this grace lasts. What is God's intention with you if you're in Christ? Verse 7. 
So that in the coming, what's that next word? Ages. Ages. How long is that? That's long. Okay? Right now we're in an age, biblically speaking, when Jesus rose from the dead. So, so far this age has been 2,000 plus years. Um, And it's still, you know, who knows how long ago? I don't know. Ages and on and on and on. It's just never going to end. What does God want to do for you and to you forever? He wants to show you. What does he want to show you? Walk through it with me. Immeasurable. What does that mean? So much I can't get it. I can't fathom it. Immeasurable riches. What does that mean? Glorious, beautiful, overwhelming. Immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. You ever friend, you've ever had a friend who was so generous to you and they're so hospitable and they, you, you have a need and they fill it and you're like, oh, I really like that. And all of a sudden they mailed it to you. Um, there's a few people like this in our church. You're so generous and you're just always kind. You're always kind and it's just, wow, it's amazing. to be. Imagine the God of the universe is like, I'm gonna spoil this person forever. Forever. I'm just gonna be so kind to them. Forever. You know, you know who the Father is gonna adore and praise forever? It's Jesus Christ. And guess who you're connected to? Jesus Christ. Luther saw it like this. When he said, how is it that we get the benefits of Jesus Christ? He used, and it's a biblical image, he used the idea of marriage. And listen to what Luther said after his perspective changed. Luther said, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them. And sins, death, and damnation will be Christ. While grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. How is it that this works? This is how it works. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? You were dead, lost in prideful heart slavery, and Jesus came and married you. And he took all your mess on himself to the cross, and he gave you all that he is. And you're seated with him in everything that he is, and all that he is, and everything he will be, and all that he has is yours forever. What did you bring to the salvation table to save yourself? I brought rebellion. That's what I brought. And what does Jesus bring? A boost, a help, a tip? Jesus brings himself and makes you alive. So yeah, we believe in salvation by grace. We believe in more than that. We believe in salvation by grace alone. Because I was hopeless and Jesus gave me himself. You see the difference? How do you know it's yours? How do you know it's yours? Well, look at verse eight. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Now, in one way, and next week, we're gonna say you're saved by faith. You can say that, that's important. But really, we see here even, even deeper waters. Ultimately, are you saved by faith? How does, how does by and through work in this sentence? You're saved by what? Grace, which is God giving you himself in Jesus Christ. Through faith. Through faith. This is really helpful for me. How many of you, sometimes uh, your faith power is, is wiggling, it's waggling? Sometimes you're like, my faith is hot, strong, oh yeah, this is so good, I'm so alive, let's go world. And other times you're like, I don't know if I can make it, right? Other times, I don't know if I can make it. I heard one pastor give an illustration thinking about the Exodus. You know that story when God saved his people from Egypt and he opens the Red Sea 
It's like, come on over, let's walk. Um, some people are full of faith and they're like, oh yeah, I'm marching, ac- I'm marching across a dried up ocean. <laughs> Look at the sharks. Uh, cool. And other people, I would imagine, are walking by like, this is insane. The wall's going to crash in on me. Which one made it across? They both made it across. And man, some of us, you're feeling it. You get more mature in your faith. You, 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 don't, you don't waver quite as much as you used to. You're solid on Christ. You feel his assurance. Christ alone, I got it. And others of us are like, I believe, help my unbelief, please. And guess which one of us has everything Christ is. You have faith in Christ, he's yours. And the thing I want you to see is, for each one of us, no matter how mature you've been in the faith, you get it, but you still don't get it, right? I get it, but I still don't get it. Do you think I really understand what it means that all who Jesus is, he's mine, and I'm seated with him even now? Do I get that all the way down? No. Do you get it all the way down? No. But look what, I mean, understand that you have more than you've ever dreamed in Christ. And let's press into it. Let's know it. Let's taste it. Here's why, so, so we're getting into now why it matters. Our problem, deadness of prideful heart slavery, solution. Grace alone of unification with the person of Jesus. Here's why it matters. Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. And here's why Paul says it matters. So that no one may boast. So it makes sense. The more you offer to your salvation, the more you can take credit for. I did it, right? So maybe even if it's a, hey, Jesus did 80%, I did 20%. Look at me, I did, 80, I did 20%, okay? And that means when you look out on the world and they don't care about Jesus and you look out on them and you're like, mm, I wish they, they should have been smart enough to do the 20% like I did, Right? Or even amazingly, what reformed people do, by the way, we're talking about reformed stuff, right? This is reformed belief. We can get boastful that we know reformed stuff, which is really ironic. Because if you know you're saved by grace alone, what does it do with every boast that you have in yourself? It obliterates it. It obliterates it. So one reason this is so important to know that you're saved by grace alone now, there's lots of reasons, but one is to start with is it gives you a deep humility, if you know this, a deep humility. How much self-righteousness is left? Thinking you're better than other people because you've done something. How much is left if it really lands on that you're saved by grace? What? Alone. It kills self-righteousness. We can't even boast about believing. You know, there's Christian A, unbeliever A. Christian A is like, hey, I'm better. At least I believed. Uh, I got something to boast about. And Paul's like, oh, yeah, even your faith? What did he say about faith? Even this is a gift. You believed because Jesus came and woke you up. Yes, you believed. Yes, you need to fight to believe. Yes, it's your choice. But it happened because he chose you first. You're alive because he woke you up. So can you even boast about your faith? That is a gift. Can you boast about your works? Look at verse 10. Hey, look, I did all this stuff. I promoted. I was there. I said stuff. I did stuff. Look at verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, which who prepared? God prepared. Who gets credit for your obedience ultimately? God does. That's why in Revelation, you know, the elders are always throwing their crowns. You ever seen that? They're throwing their crowns at the throne. Who gave them the crown? Jesus did. He put them on. I think it's when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, I want to hear that, don't you? Well done, my good and faithful servant. But then everybody up there is like, yeah, I, I did stuff, but it was you that even enabled it. Here, take it back. Glory to you. It wasn't me. And then the father's like, no, I'll wear it. It looks nice. Well done. And then you're throwing it back. Oh, but all glory to you. He gets the praise for everything. 
If this lands on you, that it's grace alone, it'll give you a deep humility. It'll change how you relate to those you disagree with the most. It'll change how you relate with those you disagree with the most. Okay, what's the attitude in our modern American culture? If somebody disagrees with you about an important topic, what should you do? Villainize them. By all means, do not listen to them. Make them look bad, pump yourself up, right? That's how we do it. We polarize, okay? And you can do it, because you're like, hey, because what are you, you're boasting when you do that, right? Ah, but I, I figured it out. I've seen the light. Salvation by counsel, salvation by guidance. I was able to do it, so I can boast over you nothings. And then Paul says, yeah, you were dead. You were dead. Without Jesus coming to you, you're no different than the person you've disagreed with the most. You're no different than the person who disgusts you the most. If Jesus didn't come to you, you're the same person, lost in prideful heart slavery. The only reason you have a hope or truth is because of God's grace. If that landed on you, what would change in your attitude towards those you disagree with the most? You would have patience. You'd have compassion. You would listen. You would care about their point of view even when you know it's wrong. You care about how they feel even when you don't think their reasons are right. Because you were dead and God had compassion on you. Oh, it would change how we relate to those who we disagree with the most. What would it do for forgiveness? To quote Keller again, he says, when we don't forgive, it's because we have a sense of superiority. I wasn't sure on that at first. You don't forgive. When you won't forgive, it's because you have a sense of superiority. When you won't forgive, it's like, well, I'd never do that. That's what's in your heart when you won't forgive. I'm justified in not forgiving this person because they're bad beyond the pale. I would never do that. And grace alone says, oh yeah, you'd do that. You were dead. And the only reason you know better is God's grace. And when you were totally dark and lost, you were loved. And Christ forgave you of all your sins. Everyone. And he's not only forgiven you, he's given you himself which means no matter what they've done, what are you called to do completely and fully? Forgive. You'll forgive if you taste grace alone. You'll struggle to forgive if you don't taste it. It matters. It matters for humility. It matters for how we treat others. And it matters for our new boast. Uh, you know, Paul says, when, he's, when he says this is not your own doing that no one may boast, is he saying we don't have any boast at all? Or is he saying we have a different boast? It's a different boast. You can look it up in your own Bible study. Christ, or Paul in one place says, I boast in Christ. Another, another place he says, I boast in the cross of Christ. So what this does then is it gives you a new boast. A new boast. And who is our boast? Jesus Christ. He's our boast. You're looking for hope, where are you going to look? Jesus Christ, you're looking for an identity, where are you going to look? Jesus, you're looking for significance, where are you going to look? Jesus, Jesus, and you'll find it's better than you ever dreamed. You don't have to strive anymore for other people's approval. You're seated with Christ. The highest possible position, and you know what it does, is it frees us. It frees us to actually love others. How does it change uh, if you know God's grace for you, like verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Why are good works so hard sometimes? Anybody else struggle with this? What are we thinking of with good works? Well, it's, it's anything, right? It's, it's loving your wife when you go home. Uh, it's being generous with your your resources, it's standing for truth, 
It's sharing the gospel. It's having integrity at work. It's, it's everything you can imagine, right? This life for the Lord. Why do we struggle with them sometimes? Don't want to do them. Don't feel like we have the resources for it. We've got to protect ourselves. I don't know. Um, we feel we're hiding. We're afraid. Or we think we don't have enough. And then when we see, hey, by grace, not only have you been forgiven, not only have you been seated with Christ, God has prepared a life for you of good works, which means where you are right now, his hand is on it, and he's, he's set this life up for you where now because you're so secure in who Christ is for you, you're free to take that, that risk or that step to, to go out and please him with love, which no longer has to be to prove yourself. It can actually and honestly be for others now because you don't have to prove yourself anymore. A new confidence, a new boast for good works in Christ. So I want to know, grace alone, what do you look to to save you? What's your percentage? 99 God, 1% you? Sola gratia, grace alone. And what do you have when you have grace alone? Jesus Christ. Everything he is, everything he's done, it's yours. So where should you put your boast? In him, in him. Go out and live like that's true. Go out and talk like that's true. We've been talking um, each week about a culture of invitation. And man, these, these words fit, don't they, with what God has done for us? What has God done for you? Hasn't he brought you in? Didn't he come for you to win you? And, and he's done so completely. He's given you a son. And so if we were to live that out, we would want to have a culture like that, a culture of invitation. So what do we mean by culture? Everybody say habit. Habit. It's not something you're like, oh, I hope I can do this once. It's, uh, it's, I love to do this. A culture of invitation. And so a good way to start could be this. You ask your friend, your neighbor, somebody you know you're in conversation. Hey, do you have a church you attend regularly? Why do we say regularly? So they got a great church they're going to already. Give them a high five. Go Jesus. Keep going to your church, right? Do you have a church you attend regularly? If not, invite them. And then they might share their story with you. They might be like, I hate church because of this, that, and the other thing. Okay, what should you do then? Listen. Good, listen, learn, understand. Apologize, maybe. But then what, what might you get to do? Share your story. Share your story. This is what God's done for me. And as you do that, the highlight of it, what might you be able to do? Share the gospel. That's the great invitation. It's the great invitation. The gospel's offered to everyone, no matter who they are. Share the gospel. And then, hopefully, as people come and join us, what do we still want to underline or build upon? The culture of invitation, even here. You know, I, I just want to think with you, if, if you want to work on this culture, um, maybe your friend does a little bit better at um, inviting somebody. Okay, but I, at the risk, I don't want to offend anybody. It's dangerous when somebody says that because what's coming next, right? <laughs> what if we thought not just about, oh, I hope I can make it to church, but if we thought about, I want to get there and be the church other people need me to be. So listen, please forgive me. I love you. I have been late to things many times in my life. If you're late, I love you. Come anyway. It's okay. But just think, how, how would you feel if you brought a friend and they got here five minutes early and there's nobody here like them to welcome them? Would you be like, cool? Or would you be like, mm. Is it a culture of invitation? Or maybe somebody's come and somebody said hi to them once are you still doing your best to bring them in relationally? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how to program this, right? How does anybody program this? 
It's about a heart, mostly. When you go, do you remember the first time you went to church? Or maybe uh, a time you went to church and it was horrible, and you were like, can you be the person you wish would have been there for you in that moment? That's what we need to have a real culture of invitation. And again, it's not about, it's not about uh, feeling good about ourselves. What's it about? It's about honoring this God who has welcomed us. And he says, share what I've given you. Be like I am. He gave us himself, and so there's something too we need to give ourselves to others in this constant welcome. Come and be in Christ and in Christ's family together. You hear my heart on that? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your love for us and that our great hope is Christ alone and your grace, grace alone. Lord, we can't earn it. We can't deserve it. But you give it and we're gonna receive it. Lord, we thank you for your love for us in Christ and that all that he is is ours. Lord, let that land on us and let it give us a deep humility, a different aspect in our love towards our neighbor and, Lord, a heart to bring others into what you've given us, that we really could have a culture of invitation here where we are constantly ready, willing, and able to, to uh, show the light of who you are, spread the news of who you are, and just be an evidence of who you are together when we meet together. We pray that you do this in us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.